really amazing effort at collaborative land management between the states, between the Forest Service, private landowners. There's a place at the table for everyone. I think there's real power in that. Releasing these fish into the wild is, is really a, an awesome feeling. They've had a lot thrown at them, but they're persisting. There are a lot of folks out there who really want to see native species flourish. That gives me hope about the future of cutthroat trout. I'm Ryan Harris, former Denver Bronco and champion of Super Bowl 50, reminding you to get your COVID vaccine. The vaccine is free, easy, and safe, and it saves lives of the ones we love. Visit denvergov.org slash worth it to learn more. Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's comprehensive annual financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'd like to call the meeting of the February Audit Committee to order. Edie, um, would you be kind enough to call roll? Uh, Jack Blumenthal? Here. Maureen Matt? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Rudy Payan? Here. Charles Scheid? Charles Scheid? Here. There he is. <laughs> uh, Edward Schultz. Here. And Tim O'Brien. Uh, here. Uh, looks like we're all here. Thank you very much. Um, next item is to really approve the minutes from the January 22 meeting. The minutes are in order. Is there a motion to approve? I so I move. Approval. Second. Thank you. Any discussion? All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? 
All right, next item is a report on the Denver International Airport concessions management. Don, um, would you like to introduce the audit team? And uh, then I'll ask Bill Washington if he'd like to introduce himself and, and his staff. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you, Auditor O'Brien. Good morning, audit committee members and guests. I'm Don Wiseman, and I was the director of the concessions management audit. So just a few words before we do introductions, um, setting the right tone of accountability, compliance, transparency, and fairness when managing the airport concessions program is important. Um, this audit highlights some areas the airport can improve in concessions management and selection to ensure that all potential vendors have equitable opportunities to compete. The airport's getting the best value from their vendors and passengers have the best airport experience possible. So I believe uh, Vilma is going to introduce her team. So I will let her do that. And then once we have the introduction of our guests, then we can get started on discussing the findings and recommendations of this audit. So Vilma, I'll Thank hand you. it off to you. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everyone. My name is Vilma Bernita, and I was the audit manager on this audit. The other team members were lead auditor Todd Green and senior auditors Dave Hancock and Ron Keller. First, I would like to thank the airport staff, especially the concessions team, for their helpfulness and positive attitude throughout the audit. And uh, at this point, maybe the airport staff can introduce themselves. Yeah, would, uh, I'm not sure who's here from the airport. Uh, Good morning. Um, this is Penny May. I'm the chief commercial officer. Mr. Washington was unable to join us this morning. And also here is Pamela Deshant. She's the Senior Vice President of Concessions. Great. Thank you, Penny. Mm -hmm. Shall we get started? Yes. Unfortunately, my slides just disappeared. Do you still, still see the slides? No, I don't. This has not happened at any point before. Okay, let me try. I will stop sharing. And um, we'll try one more time. And you see the slides in presentation mode now? Or? It's not in presentation mode, but they're up there. They are up? Okay. We have to click the slideshow. Looks like it's okay now? Yeah, there you go. All right, you're in business. Good. The objective of this audit was to assess whether Denver Airport's concessions management approach is cost-effective and fair, and to compare Denver Airport's concessions contracting practices to select other airports. Those airports were Denver, sorry, Minneapolis and Paul, San Francisco, McCarran International in Las Vegas, and the Houston Airport Systems. 
This audit included a review of the contracting approach and the premium value concessions program. The scope for reviewing contract holdover period was January 1995 to August 2021. The scope for concessions program cost was January 2017 through December 2020. The report has three findings and an appendix. I will now hand over to Ron to present the background. Well, thank you, Vilma. Beginning on page one of the report, the airport is an enterprise and operates like a business. It charges fees to airlines and other vendors, including concessionaires. Airport revenues are used to cover airport operating expenses. The airport opened in February 1995. Airport concessions include businesses that sell food and beverages, retail and duty-free shops, and passenger services, which may include hair salons and baggage carts. As of August 2021, there were 146 concession locations. 42 were operated by individual concessionaires and 104 locations were run by 26 concessionaires, which each had more than one location at the airport. Continuing on page two, the concessions program goals include providing travelers with needed products and services, as well as maximizing non-airline revenue. This is accomplished while ensuring compliance with the airport concession disadvantaged business enterprise program. This program is administered by the Federal Aviation Administration and is discussed in more detail on page five of the report. Going back to page two, a critical piece of the airport's concessions program is the solicitation, selection, award, and administration of concession contracts. The airport selects new concessionaires through a competitive selection process. This process includes issuing a request for proposals. A selection panel evaluating each proposal is typically made up of airport employees, an airline representative, and a member of the community. Lastly, the airport's chief executive officer authorizes airport staff to offer the concession contrast. It is typically awarded to the highest ranking applicant. On page three, we provide additional relevant concessions information about a premium value concession program that will be discussed in more detail in finding one. An ownership concentration policy that says no concessionaire can operate space that exceeds 24% of the airport's total concession space or 15% of the space for either the food and beverage or the retail category. Typical concession contract terms include a minimum annual guarantee or a percent of the concession sales and contract term lengths of five to 15 years. On page six in figure two, we provide information about Denver Airport's concession revenues and passenger volumes. Onboarding passengers and revenues were increasing before the COVID pandemic. Then passenger count fell from about 35 million to 17 million, and revenues fell from about 86 million to about $45 million. In response to the COVID pandemic, the airport provided some rent and payment relief to businesses operating at the airport, including the concessionaires. For example, in September, 2021, 
the airport extended all concession contracts in holdover status by three years. In addition, all other pre-existing contracts active during the pandemic will also be extended by three years when they expire. Figure three on page seven shows the concession team costs, which include labor costs of about a million dollars a year and payments to a third party contractor, Metrics Advisors, to manage the airport's premium value concession program. The program has been suspended due to the pandemic. On page eight, we provide a brief overview of the parties involved in the concession program. This includes a concessions team within the commercial operations unit, the airport disadvantaged business enterprise program, contracts, and both airport legal and internal audit groups. This completes the background section. Are there any questions or comments? Any questions from the committee? <clears throat> I think we can continue. Todd will follow with the discussion of the findings and thank you. Thanks, Ron. I will now begin presenting finding one, which begins on page nine of the report. Finding one is that Denver International Airport allows some concessionaires to bypass the competitive selection process. Denver International Airport's premium value concessions program is meant to incentivize concessionaires that the airport believes will provide the best value to the airport. This program allows some concessionaires to earn a program benefit, giving them the opportunity to directly negotiate a new contract at the airport, rather than to compete against other prospective vendors when their contract ends. Our team identified several problems with the program. First, the program allows some concessionaires to bypass the competitive selection process. Second, the airport pays an outside firm a significant amount of money to administer the program, having not evaluated the cost of administering the program in-house. And lastly, the rules and regulations that govern the program are confusing and difficult to follow. In the premium value concessions program, concessionaires are evaluated in three categories. The first is an operational category where concessionaires receive a pass or fail grade based on whether they pay rent on time, follow contractual requirements, maintain the concession space as required, and comply with requirements for hours of operation. If a vendor fails an operational criteria, they can't earn the program benefit. The second category is the financial category where concessionaires are scored on various sales metrics, which includes sales growth. In the last category, concessionaires are assessed on how they compare to other vendors at Denver International Airport and other competitor airports that are selected by airport management. According to the program rules, concessionaires must score in the top of all in the top one third of all participating concessionaires to earn the program benefit. Denver Executive Order Number Eight helps to ensure good financial stewardship for Denver and helps to maintain a fair, open, and competitive market for the goods and services the city purchases. This order says that all city contracts are to be competitively bid, absent special requirements or circumstances such as emergencies, goods or services only being available from a single source, when standardized equipment or continuity of service might be required, and some other specific situations. None of these special requirements or circumstances apply to airport concession contracts. So by allowing some concessionaires to avoid the competitive selection process, the airport violates this order. Also, the airport may be missing out on potential revenue by not evaluating other prospective concessionaires that might want to compete for the available concession space. Employees at other airports we spoke with 
reported earning more revenue when they changed the brands in their concession spaces. Additionally, the airport's concessions policy says that the airport has an obligation to build its concessions program on a foundation of fairness and transparency. By shielding certain vendors from competitive selection, the airport prevents other businesses from being able to compete with these profitable concessions contracts, which is unfair and inequitable. And lastly, smaller businesses or local businesses might have a difficult time competing against other concessionaires who consistently earn the program benefit. The airport claims that the premium value concessions program is an objective method of evaluating eligible concessionaires, rewards top performers, encourages growth in concessions revenues, and that it attracts and retains airlines. However, the airport has never evaluated whether the program actually provides these benefits. <clears throat> if the airport's premium value businesses truly are top performers, they should be able to win a competitive selection process against other prospective concessionaires, making the program and the effort required to support it a waste of resources that the airport could put to better use. Employees we spoke with at other airports said they believe incentive programs for concessionaires are not necessary, given that concessions contracts are very profitable. Because these airport contracts are so valuable, being able to operate at the airport should be incentive enough for vendors to perform well without the need for a premium value concessions program. Denver International Airport is the third busiest airport in the United States and the eighth busiest in the world, making these concessionaire contracts very valuable. Incentives for top performing concessionaires are likely not a good use of airport resources. Furthermore, because the airport's program rewards only top performers that are already in business at the airport, it isn't necessarily finding and retaining the best or most qualified concessionaires available in the open market. Instead, only finding the best or most qualified concessionaires that are already in business at the airport. Next, we will discuss how using a third party administrator might not be in the best interest of the airport. The airport rule governing this program requires the airport to hire a third party administrator and a Denver firm, Metrics Advisors LLC, has been the third-party administrator since the program began in 2012. The airport paid Metrics Advisors about half a million dollars annually in 2018 and 2019 for this administrative oversight. This amounted to about 31% of the entire cost to run the airport concessions program in each of those years. We also learned that most concessionaires at the airport are participating in the program and that most if not all concessions contracts require the participation. Participants are required to pay 1% of their gross sales into a joint marketing fund each month, which is then used to pay the outside administrator and for concessionaire marketing efforts. Because only one third of the concessionaires earn the program benefit, that means that two thirds of the airport concessionaires are required to pay for a program that ultimately does not benefit them. Airport staff haven't evaluated the costs and benefits of administering the program in-house. As a result, the money the airport spends for an external program administrator may be wasteful, which the U.S. Government Accountability Office defines as using or spending resources carelessly, extravagantly, or to no purpose. Lastly, we will discuss the problems with the rule. The program is laid out in Rule 45 of the airport's rules and regulations. The rule is 32 pages long, and in many instances, terms are not well defined and the language is unclear. In general, we found the rule to be exceptionally confusing. For example, the rule doesn't contain formulas or explanations to calculate some amounts, and the guidelines for score calculations are cumbersome. The airport's own legal team said that the rule was incomprehensible. 
As a result of, a lack, of the lack of clarity in the rule, someone unfamiliar with the process would find it difficult to follow. And this could lead to inaccurate scores, the airport retaining poor performing concessionaires, or possibly not retaining better concessionaires. Additionally, concessionaires might become disgruntled if they don't win the program benefit, especially if they have difficulty understanding the rule. The cause of these issues is that airport employees have never evaluated the effectiveness of the premium value concessions program. The auditor's office recommended in 2014 that the airport formally assess the effectiveness of the program on a regular basis. This hasn't been done since that recommendation was made. Because the airport spends a significant sum of money on the premium value concessions program without any proven benefit, and because the program allows certain vendors to circumvent the competitive selection process in violation of the city executive order, it isn't in the airport's best interest to continue the program. As a result, our team made recommendation 1.1, which appears on page 15 of the report and says that Denver International Airport's senior vice president of concessions should discontinue the premium value concessions program because it violates executive order number eight's requirement for competitive selections and has no proven benefit to the airport. The airport agreed to implement this recommendation by August 31st of this year. I'd like to now open the floor for any questions or comments regarding this finding and recommendation. Uh, Penny, uh, would you like to further comment on the recommendation and the finding? Sure, we do agree with the recommendation, recommendation to discontinue the program, but we do believe that the program is in line with executive order eight. Um, we believe that it, the executive order eight section that talks about special circumstances covers this program and that the manager here, the former CEO of the airport had the um, responsibility to authorize and justify the running of the program. Furthermore, the PBC program as it was authorized was approved by the mayor and city council as PBC award contracts went through. We do support incentivizing performance, so we will take the recommendation and create an internal program designed to support the concession program while providing a positive customer experience for the traveling public. Okay, thank you. Um, any questions from the audit committee? Uh, yes, I have several. Um, Penny, if, if I may, could, could I ask um, how long you've been in this position? I have, I was appointed um, last year. I've been at the airport three years and I was an, as the acting chief commercial uh, officer for a year before that. Okay, fair enough. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, would you agree that uh, Den is uh, in effect a crown jewel or the crown jewel of the city and county of Denver in the state of Colorado? I would. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I guess, you know, um, I, I'm just at a loss to understand why it is, uh, that we don't allow, that we don't have an open competitive process. You know, when you think about what's happened since the airport opened, uh, we had 9-11 occur, uh, we've had the pandemic. Uh, the internet is, you know, changed a lot of things as have the, as the pandemic, um, businesses changed a lot and this is basically a business. 
And uh, it can, you know, from everything I, you know, been told uh, by the National Association of Corporate Directors uh, is that we expect things to change rapidly. So I guess the base question is, is in the face of all this change that's going on in our society, just from a common business point of view, uh, don't you think opening things up for competition and bid periodically uh, is the best way to go in the United States in terms of doing business? I, you know, and, and by the way, you're not the person who brought this to us. So you've got a clean slate. So uh, my view is today is the rest, the first day of the rest of our lives. And that's how I'm, my questioning relates to that. Uh, Penny, would you like to respond to that? Sure. Uh, and thank you for that, sir. Um, as you stated, uh, this, this program was in place and running when I came to the airport. I will say that we do have open competition since the fall of 2019, we've issued 24 RFPs for new concession spaces, primarily in the area of the gate expansions. Um, and so that, that effort continues. That of course will slow down now that extensions have been granted, but we will continue to do open RFPs for spaces that become available until the extensions expire. So what you're saying is without regard to the issue of, you know, whether, you know, legally you're doing what you're doing and just let's assume that you are, you, you're accepting the recommend, am I, am I understanding you correctly that you're accepting the, the basic recommendation that says that concession contracts are all gonna be opened up to competitive bidding going forward with the expiration of whatever legal obligations the existing and, and rights the existing uh, vendors have. Is that, a, is that a fair understanding of what you're saying? I would say that we agree with discontinuing the premium value concessions program as it's currently designed, that we will continue to issue RFPs as spaces become available. We do have outstanding PVC awards that we will award once the, uh, ex the extensions expire. And we do believe in incentivizing, so we will create a different and new program that will run in-house to incentivize performance. Yeah, but I guess the question I'm asking is, when you talk about the, incentives and, and, uh, the incentives, I think earlier in the audit report, uh, what the auditors found was that having concession revenue uh, concessions uh, in airport, at airports and in particular the third busiest in the United States should be incentive enough uh, and why not just let the free marketplace do things that uh, you know putting in regulations uh, if, if any what other incentives are really necessary? Well, that's what we're studying right now, and we will look at that in designing a new program. Thank you. Are there other questions? I do have one question. In terms of uh, <clears throat> matrix advisors, uh, Penny, what are the plans in terms of replacing matrix advisors, if any, at this point, uh, since it's been proven that 
they take a big chunk of costs and uh, and they prove to be somewhat ineffective in managing the, the program. What are your thoughts on the, on uh, matrix advisors? And I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask Pam to chime in here now. They have a current contract that I believe expires um, early this summer. Is that correct, Pam? That's correct. And any new program that we do, we will bring in house. I do have one question. What I'm sure they came up in terms of what exactly did they provide during that time when they were responsible for the contract in terms of overseeing the program? Any positives that came out of it? Pam, can you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, they metrics advisors ran the whole program, um, did the scoring, the calculations. Uh, the we can't forget that a lot of the cost was passed through. Um, customer service training, um, they, they managed the entire program for us. So yes, there were positives. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, should we continue? Todd, David? Yep, uh, Audrey O'Brien, I'll now present finding two from the Thank report. You. And finding two begins on page 16 of the report and is that Denver International Airport has not evaluated whether it uses the optimal contracting approach for its overall concessions program. Figure one from page four of the report shows some of the major concessions contracting processes. With a direct concessionaire contracting approach, the airport selects the best vendor to operate at an individual location or perhaps several locations as part of one contract. Under a prime concessionaire contract, the airport contracts with a concessionaire to lease multiple concession spaces the prime concessionaire might directly operate all of the locations or it may sublease some or all of the locations. An airport can have more than one prime concessionaire. A mixed approach is where the airport has both direct and prime concessionaires. The airport developed a concessions master plan in 2019 to forecast passenger demands and needs. However, this plan was developed without determining the optimal mix of prime concessionaire contracts and direct contracts. The mix of concessionaires may impact profitability, customer service, and other goals that are important to the airport. Federal guidance says that airport operators should decide which contracting approach offers the best outcome after analyzing the costs and benefits of each approach. Financial factors include competition between concessionaires, capital investment, administrative costs, and financial returns. In addition to financial factors, the airport should consider other goals like customer service, local business participation, or social responsibility. Denver International Airport currently uses a mixed approach for concessionaire contracts. Airport staff told our team that they use direct contracts in most situations. In speaking with employees at other US airports, we learned that a mixed approach like Denver's is typical. However, each airport is unique. And as a result, Denver International Airport must assess which mix is best for its facilities. The cause of this issue is that airport staff have not revisited their concessionaire contracting approach or assessed its cost and benefits since the airport opened in 1995, over 25 years ago. As a result, our team made two recommendations. Recommendation 2.1, appearing on page 18 of the report, says that Denver International Airport's Senior Vice President of Concessions should periodically assess the costs and benefits of the airport's approach to concessionaire contracting to ensure it achieves the airport's objectives. 
The assessment should evaluate potential approaches in line with the specific factors for policies described in the Federal Resource Manual for airport and terminal concessions. The airport agreed to implement this recommendation by July 31st of this year. We also made recommendation 2.2, appearing on page 19 of the report, which says that after implementing recommendation 2.1, Denver International Airport's Senior Vice President of Concessions should update the airport's concessions master plan to reflect the airport's chosen approach to concessionaire contracting, including the reason for the chosen approach. The airport agreed to implement this recommendation by August 15th of this year. I'll now open the floor for any questions or comments regarding this finding and recommendations. Uh, Penny, anything you'd like to add to your agreement? I'm pleased that you're in agreement with the recommendations. Uh, yes, nothing to add to those. Okay. Uh, questions from the committee? Okay, let's continue. Thank you, Auditor O'Brien. I'm going to turn the presentation over to Dave now, who's going to present finding three from the report. Thank you, Todd. Starting on page 20 of the report, finding three is titled, Some of Denver International Airport's Concessions Contracting Practices Are Unfair. There are two sections to this finding. First, we identified the airport allows certain concessionaires to hold over when their contract ends, and it allows them to stay in their leased concession space indefinitely without going through the competitive selection process. We also found the airport destroys scoring information after concessionaire selection. The first part of the finding starts on page 20. The airport allows some concessionaires to remain years after their contracts expire. All concessions contracts have holdover provisions. This means under certain circumstances, vendors can continue operating after their contracts expire. There is no time limit for how long a contract can hold over. Once the airport determines the need for a holdover, the airport reviews the contract language and drafts a holdover notification. The airport allows holdovers to maintain services for the traveling public, while the airport conducts initiatives such as master planning or to continue operations as the airport did during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the holdover practice was in place long before the pandemic began. We found 40% of contracts active as of August, 2021, or 37 of 92 contracts at that time were holding over since before December, 2019. As we show in figure four on page 21, some contract holdovers have been in place up to 12 years. The team judgmentally selected and reviewed five held over contracts we selected contracts with longer holdover periods and those that were in holdover status before the pandemic. We found the airport may have had legitimate business reasons for holding over some contracts, such as airport construction having unforeseen delays, but others like the 2008 contract do not have ju a justification. As stated on page 22 of the report, executive order number eight requires all city agencies to justify contract terms longer than three to five years. The airport does justify the terms of new contracts, which are five to 15 years long, but unjustified holdovers violate Executive Order 8. Second, the Executive Order also requires contracts to be competitively bid, 
absent special circumstances such as public emergencies. Holdovers allow existing concessionaires operating at the airport without a new competitive bidding. Federal guidance suggests that any contract extensions should be carefully considered because the airport is likely to benefit more from a competitive selection process rather than extensions of contracts. We conclude that airport employees did not prioritize competitive procurement and chose to hold over some contracts. The lengthy master planning process also contributed to the more recent holdovers. As a result, we determined the airport treats its concessionaires inequitably. Some concessionaires must go through the city's competitive selection process, while others go through the holdover status. We have two recommendations for this first part of this finding, which can be found on page 23. First, recommendation 3.1. Denver International Airport's Senior Vice President of Concessions should work with the airport's contracts director to review all contracts and holdover status and those extended following the holdover and assess opportunities for new procurements or new contracts in accordance with executive order number eight. The airport agreed to implement this recommendation by May 30th, 2022. Recommendation 3.2, Denver International Airport's Senior Vice President of Concessions should work with the airport's contracts director and legal staff to establish and enforce a policy and procedure for held over contracts, including setting a reasonable time frame that limits the length of time contracts can remain in this status and requiring a reasonable justification for holding over a contract. Documentation of this justification should also be reviewed and approved. The airport also agreed to implement this recommendation by April 15, 2022. At this time, I'll turn over to the airport and audit committee members for comments or questions. Uh, Penny, any additional comments? Yes, I'm gonna ask Pam to provide some more information sure. um, about the holdover co uh, contracts um, since she has a bit more history than I do. Pam? Thank you. Um, we agree with this recommendation and happy to report that this effort is already in progress. We will continue to review all contracts and holdover status as part of our um, commercial phasing plan. A phasing plan for holdover contracts commenced in uh, the end of last year. So we are already taking action on this. As you heard earlier, all concession agreements were issued a three-year extension to support the business recovery and survival. While, and here's the important part, meeting the basic needs of the traveling public throughout this pandemic. Priority for our commercial phasing plan is being given two holdover agreements. The phasing plan will include timelines of RFP launch based on location and capacity to serve the traveling public during development. For example, the plan needs to thoughtfully time each closure on each concourse based on keeping options open in each subcourt, the ends of the concourses throughout our commercial development, especially based on the projection of passengers traveling through Den. And for three, uh, recommendation 3.2, um, we agree to work with the contracts director and legal staff to establish a policy and procedure for held over contracts and we'll add this to our concessions standard operating procedures. More good news is that we already have language drafted for this recommendation. 
Um, justification, I want to point out, for entering holdover phase is already captured in each agreement and holdover notification that the airport issues and then will continue this practice. The airport does believe holdovers do not violate Executive Order 8. Language in Executive Order 8 does not reference holdover provisions anywhere or provide any guidance on when holdover provisions in appropriately executed contracts may or may not be utilized. The airport interprets Executive Order 8 language to detail the standards applicable to the selection, perimeters, and executions of new contracts and contract documents. Keyword, new. The airport does provide language about holdover provisions in every single con concession agreement. Instead, the airport believes Executive Order 8 contains language suitable for having the flexibility to maintain, operate, and develop the third busiest airport in the world. As 24-7 public transportation facilities, airports must maintain flexibility to ensure continued provision of services and goods to the traveling public. That's our job. The airport understands Executive Order 8 to allow this flexibility in the special circumstances language listed in Memorandum 8B. Guidance for developing new concessions programs or agreements should be surveyed completely differently during the stage of drafting a new agreement than when considering an agreement that's already in place, in this case, the holdovers that we're referencing. Too many factors can impact the need to maintain service to the traveling public, some of which cannot possibly be predicted years in advance, just like the global pandemic. It should not be overlooked that it is standard practice for an airport to position itself for years to be able to activate a major master plan in Den's case, the largest commercial development in the United States. An example of this is a case study about best practice in a concessions program. Indianapolis Airport is used as an example of a best practice program by the National Academies Press, the same author of the federal guidance listed in this auditor's report. The master plan at the best practice case study airport took nine years to develop. In most cases, Placing contracts on a holdover is the only logical solution. Airports must have a method of being able to serve the traveling public while activating said plans. Because commercial development in a public transportation facility, which never closes, requires careful preparation, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to close each concession location upon exact expiration. If this technique were used, there would never be a time in which an airport can trigger development since there would be multiple expiration dates across multiple locations in our large airport. So finally, we believe implementing recommendation 3.1 and the continuation of the master plan development will naturally solve for outstanding holdovers in addition to adding the upcoming policy and procedure to our standard operating procedures. Thank you. Um, thank you. I, I have one question. Um, I certainly agree with you that there are special circumstances where you would want to have a holdover. But doesn't 12 years seem like a long time to hold one over? 
Yes, sir. It can seem like a long time. And I'm sorry, I can't speak to 2008 contracts. But what I can tell you is that we're moving forward and we're doing it swiftly. Other yeah, I, I have a question. Um, I, I guess I'm, uh, can you explain why it is that old contracts should be handled differently than new contracts? In other words, why should the old vendors be treated differently than new potential vendors? Could you explain that, please, Pam? Maybe, maybe I can give you an example. Um, when the construction began in the Great Hall, those contracts were um, in holdover status. And they were left that way because as construction began to phase, we knew that some would have to be notified to be closed to accommodate ongoing construction. And so that's why those contracts were treated differently. Does that help? Uh Actually, it doesn't, because I guess the general, and I understand what you're saying, Penny, and there may be certain circumstances where that's the case, but as a general matter, I don't believe that the old incumbents, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand why old incumbents is a general matter, which is the way I understood, uh, you know, Pam to be describing it, should be treated differently than new uh, than, than, than new contracts. In other words, yes, you've got certain circumstances, but that really should apply to new and old contracts. And to me, I, I just don't understand why you, that differentiation was made or if there really is a differentiation. Mr. Blumenthal, I was not referring to old contracts versus new. I was referring to the need to be able to serve the traveling public. And in some cases, the only way to do that is to use the current agreement that we have. Remember, the RFP process takes a little while. And instead of closing a food location, um, which we're already under capacity, we choose on occasion to continue service to the traveling public through the mechanism of a holdover of a current operator because it's in the best interest for the passengers and the airport. Instead of closing the location, conduct uh, procuring a competitive process, bringing in a new operator, that can take a year and a half. So there, there is no difference between old contracts and new contracts. Does that help? Thank you. Thank you. Well, maybe you could help me with on occasion, 40% of these contracts are in holdover status. And you said on occasion, is that a consistent statement? Well, perhaps it's not. I have a question in the sense that in terms of <clears throat> revising the uh, new procedures for the RFP, will there be a, a new section on holdover contracts or holdover on holdover uh, contracts and, and, and the new procedures as it's being redrafted? Yes. Yes. There'll be a policy. It'll be part of the procedures. And if there requires a contract language to be revised, we will do that at the same time. And how long do you give yourselves in terms of developing or revising the uh, procedures? 
we've already started working on that and drafting language for the holdover policy. And so we will take that to our executive, uh, to our executive leadership team. And once approved, we will get that in place and then um, write that into the operating procedures. Because I think, you know, looking back, that's probably the beginning point in terms of the root cause. So I just was very curious on that. Thank you, Penny. Thank you. Shall we continue? Yes, thank you, Auditor. The second part of the finding starts on page 23. The airport is not transparent with its scoring process when selecting concessionaires. When potential concessionaires respond to a request for proposals for airport concession space, a selection panel is chosen and evaluates and scores the vendors that meet the minimum criteria. Once a concessionaire's contract is signed, selection panels, individual, and summary score sheets are not kept. In fact, airport procedures say the score sheets must be destroyed and only the final ranking and comments are kept. As we describe on page 24, the airport has two reasons for not keeping the score sheets. First, the airport wants to protect panel members from disclosing their score and to allow panel members to objectively score the proposals. Second, destroying score sheets might deter unsuccessful proposers from suing the airport. You may also be asking, what are other airports doing? The audit team compared Denver Airport's retention of selection panel score sheets to four other airports. This comparison can be found in the appendix in figure five on page 35 of the report. Other airports are retaining both or at least the summary score sheets. By not keeping the score sheets, the airport is not being transparent with residents, community members, and business partners it serves. It is also not consistent with the Colorado Open Records Act. The act says all public records shall be kept open for inspection by any person at reasonable times, except for some exceptions specifically provided by law. Score sheets for competitive solicitations are not among the exceptions. State guidance also says that as a general rule, government entities should consider most documents to be subject to the open records law. In addition, the city's records retention schedule says all purchasing documents must be kept for seven years. Although the term purchasing documents is vague, it is reasonable to infer a selection panel scores are part of the purchasing process. A 2014 audit of concessions management by the auditor's office found the airport was destroying selection panel members score sheets, showing this remains a problem for the concessions program eight years later. As the airport's concession policy says, because Denver International Airport is a publicly owned facility, it is obligated to build its concessions program on a foundation of fairness and transparency. By destroying the score sheets, the airport risks its reputation by not being transparent and it risks both the appearance of corruption and potential lawsuits from concessionaires. When key documents that give insight into decisions are not publicly available, it may give the appearance the airport did not follow the rules or that favoritism influenced the selection process. We have one recommendation for this last part of the finding, which can be found on page 25. Recommendation 3.3, Denver International Airport's Senior Vice President of Business Operations should revise the airport's procedure related to selection panel score sheets and ensure airport staff retain the score sheets for seven years in accordance with the city's records retention schedule. 
This record's retention should begin as soon as possible for all contract selection panel score sheets. The airport agreed with this recommendation and said they have implemented it as of December 1st, 2021. This concludes the, air, the audit report presentation. We'd like to now turn the floor over to the airport and audit committee members for comments or questions. Uh, Penny, any additional comments? Um, just that that it was implemented and Greg Hagerty, the Senior Vice President of Business Operations is also on the call if there's any questions for him. All right, any questions from the audit committee? Okay, well that concludes the audit report. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you all. Mm -hmm. The next item on our agenda is Let's see. Sam Gallagher, Gallagher is going to present uh, our uh, an update on our audit analytics program. Sam, there you are. Would you like to uh, take over from here? Yes, thank you. Good morning. Um, let me pull up the presentation. And first of all, I'll pass it over to Katya for any opening remarks, our director. Katya. Yeah, thanks. Good morning, auditor, members of the committee and guests. My name is Katya Freeman, audit director, and with me, as you just heard, is Sam Gallagher, audit analytics manager, Nicholas Hernan, data analytics specialist, and William Morales, our audit analytics senior. And Nicholas is our new specialist, and we're really happy to have him join our team. I wanted to start off the meeting with just a quick reminder. The team presents this continuous audit um, semi-annual update to you twice a year. And this is the balance the team is trying to strike between reporting out to the public, which is a government auditing standards requirement, without looking like they provide continuous monitoring, which is considered a management function when reporting out frequently on the results. And with that little reminder, I'm handing it back over to Sam, who's gonna get you all started. All right, thank you, Katya. So just as a reminder, uh, I'll describe some of our work and then we can get into uh, the past year's results. So in general, our audit analytics work can be placed into two categories. First, our risk finding analytics. These consist of developing analytics to identify potential financial or performance related risks in the city. We report our findings internally, which are then used as part of the risk, the office's risk assessment process. Second are our continuous audit analytics. These are analytics, analytics which have been part of a full audit, which, have, which we have worked to automate for ongoing monitoring of risk. Um, again, for internal purposes to see if controls are being implemented and if those that have been implemented, if, if there's any changes. Again, not as not to be construed as a management function. Uh, in some cases, we automate previous audit work, and in other cases, our risk finding analytics are used by auditors in their field work. And then, once we verify those results, we lump them into our continuous audit analytics, and we rerun those frequently throughout the year, reporting out twice a year. 
So today we will cover both our risk finding analytics and our continuous audit work, along with other major accomplishments um, from the year. First, William, our senior audit analytics, our senior analytics auditor, excuse me, will give an update on our automated analyses and some of our risk finding analytics. Um, some of them are risk finding analytics and some of them are continuous audit activities. Next, I will provide an update on some of the in internal risk finding projects that we completed this year and our analytics benchmarking activities. And then we'll end the update with a review of our engagement with the broader audit community and some of the internal training that we've provided to the audit staff this year. William, I'll pass the, the floor to you now. Thank you, Sam, and good morning. The audit analytics team is constantly looking to connect to more databases uh, that the city uses to store different kinds of information. Uh, we connect to different systems and we've downloaded a number of records on each of those systems. These includes GenTax, the city tax system, databases for the city's credit card transactions, general entries that keep track of all the city's financial transactions and timekeeping records and city system access records. Uh, overall, we've downloaded over 5 million records and run automated analysis on them. So the first set of analyses that I'm going to uh, go over are for the system GenTax. Now, GenTax is the system the city uses to monitor taxes owed to the city and county of Denver. We look at this data in two ways. Uh, number one, we look at the timeliness on how quickly tax returns are accepted into the system. We want to give confirmation to the people filing their returns that they're being processed in a timely manner to avoid having a return sit for a prolonged period of time, causing a potential collection action being taken against the taxpayer. Uh, we also take a look at write-offs. A write-off is when there is an outstanding amount owed to the city. And we essentially say that this person no longer owes this amount, whether it's a tax or a penalty or any other amount owed to the city. What we look for here is to ensure that the person who's removing the amount owed to the city is not the same person who has final approval. This ensures that not one person has total control and authority over the process. Now, looking at the next slide, we see the processing time returns in GenTax. We calculate the number of returns that are processed within seven days. We noticed a steady decline throughout 2021 when compared to the previous years. However, near the end of the year, we saw processing percentage pick, pick back up. Overall, we're seeing that 97% of returns are being processed within seven days, which is above the metric that we discovered during the 2016 audit. On the next slide, I want to remind everyone uh, of our last update in August 2021. We had found over 10,000 write-offs where the requester and approver were named batched, so they appeared to be the same uh, person who was both requesting and approving these write-offs. We looked into this and found that the Department of Finance had suggested to Treasury to clear low-value low, low penalties and interest balances. During the second half of 2021, uh, we saw no new write-offs with matching names, showing that the controls are working and no one individual is exer exercising complete control over the write-off process. Next, I want to talk about city spending, uh, specifically concerning the use of uh, purchase cards, which are the credit cards used by the city and county of Denver for low value purchases. We're about two years from when the city enacted pandemic measures, which included extending work from home policies and canceling most city related travel. What we've noticed is that while total spending continues to trend downward, we are seeing some agencies starting to increase their spending. We're still not at pre pandemic levels, though. On the next slide, focusing on purchase cards, we run several analytics where we try to identify any risks in spending. Part of this analysis has, has us looking at what we call split transactions. 
This is when an individual tries to get around their transaction spending limit by having a vendor select their card more than once for a purchase. So for example, if your credit card has a $2,000 purchase and you're trying to make a $2,500 purchase, you'll swipe it once for $2,000 and then immediately swipe it again for $500. Uh, these types of transactions have continued to decrease through 2021. And at the moment, we have not identified any trends that would require a closer look. We will continue monitoring these types of transactions to identify any changes in the trends. On the next slide, we also look at what we refer to as pass-through vendors. Uh, these are vendors where um, any individual can set up an account and accept payment. Uh, and we would not easily know who is actually receiving that payment based on the data. Uh, this includes platforms such as Venmo, Etsy, Square, PayPal, and the Amazon Marketplace, where anyone can essentially make an account and receive payment. Uh, overall, purchase card spending has decreased by about 5% when compared to spending in 2020. However, the spending at Amazon continues to be proportionally the same as it has been in previous years. The city has, however, eliminated payment via Venmo and Etsy for 2021. Next, uh, I want to talk about travel card spending. Most travel card spending was suspended during the pandemic, which resulted in a major decline in travel spending. When we look at travel spending, we look at what is known as merchant category codes when performing our analyses. These merchant codes are assigned by the credit card company and they help identify the type of business where the credit card was used. The majority of travel spending that we're seeing is what we consider low risk. Uh, on the next slide, we can see a graphic of this. Uh, low risk spending are those expenses that we would typically expect to see when in travel, such as spending at hotels, rental cars, and airfare, just to name a few. Uh, we have noticed in 2021, there is a slight increase in travel card spending. This includes some spending categories that we have considered to be high, high risk. High risk transactions typically include transactions where a merchant is identified by a very general category, such as other or not elsewhere classified. Uh, so things we could we, we would not typically expect to see uh, during travel. We also monitor our expenses that are considered medium risk. These are allowed by the city under specific circumstances during travel, but we have not identified any medium risk in the current spending. Uh, next, I want to move on and talk briefly about supplier invoices. And specifically, this is about checks held for pickup. Uh, this occurs when a payment is made by the city with an actual physical check and the city holds on to it uh, for someone to come and physically pick it up. Uh, the risk, according to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners here, being asset misappropriation. So someone uh, taking possession of that check when they shouldn't. Uh, there are a number of reasons for a physical check being held, uh, including that a vendor specifically requests that payment be made via physical check, or there might be a requirement for a physical check to be held. Uh, in the second half of 2021, we did identify that there were three checks that were held for pickup that were over for a million dollars. Specifically, these checks were for uh, the deferred payment on the 2020 payroll taxes. This was because of an IRS notice, which allowed employers to defer withholding and payment of employees, social security taxes on certain wages in calendar year 2020 with repayment to occur during calendar year 2021. Uh, the city also uh, acquired a parcel of land and the final check was for a settlement claim. Now, looking on the graph on the next slide, we see that the number of physical checks being held for pickup has stabilized at their lowest levels that we've seen over the last two years. So agencies are relying less and less on physical checks. Uh, we'll continue to monitor these trends to see if we see a shift in the number of checks held for pickup. Uh, I do want to take a quick break here to allow for any questions or comments from the audit committee. And I know we have city controller Bill Rydell uh, on the call as well. 
Okay, thank you. Um, William, are there any questions from the audit committee? I have, I have one. Sure. Uh, just to clarify, even with the purchase card uh, purchases, those have to be uh, documented with a receipt and then approved, although after the fact, correct? So yes, every single transaction that we've uh, analyzed for purchase card purchases does have uh, receipts and approvals if necessary, and they're all uh, uploaded into Workday. Okay, thank you. Okay, other questions? William, you wanna continue? Thank you. Uh, next, I wanna talk about purchase orders. Uh, these are the preferred method of acquisition for the city. We use purchase orders when we enter into contracts with vendors. Uh, specifically, I wanna talk about whenever an agency makes an unauthorized uh, purchase. Uh, unauthorized purchase orders are grouped into three categories. Uh, these are uh, after the fact violations, which include when a purchase is made by an agency prior to the purchase order being in place. Usually valid pricing is associated with these. And there are fiscal rule violations and code violations. Uh, what these have in common is that they do not follow the procurement uh, procedures. The only difference being that fiscal rule violations are for purchases that are under $10,000 and code violations are for purchases that are over $10,000. Looking on the graph on the next slide, we see that while fiscal rule violations are starting to trend down, they're still the most numerous when compared to the other violations, as can be seen by the blue line on the graph. Code violations are trending lower as well, as seen by the orange line, and after-the-fact violations, which is the green line, have stayed relatively stable throughout the last two years. We also conduct analyses uh, looking for any instance where we may have paid a vendor twice using a different payment mechanism. So making a purchase order payment and then paying them again with a purchase or travel card or any other payment mechanism. We also identify any even dollar payments. Uh, and these are payments that are cleanly divisible by $100. Uh, we report the results of these analysis in, internally into the office. Uh, I would like to take another quick break here because I know we have also have the General Services Chief Procurement Officer Lance J on the line for any comments or questions from the committee. Questions from the committee? I have one. Okay. <laughs> so when you say that um, the unauthorized purchases are um, that, that you identified, you know, in the in the top line, the green line, did when you say they're reported internally, are they reported internally to the auditor's office? Or are you reporting that back to the the agency office for uh, you know evaluation? So I I will let Lance J speak on speak on that. Uh, we do uh, we do report uh, these internally to us. The General Services Procurement Division flags all of these uh, purchase orders when they uh, for any of these violations. And uh, based on the last time we performed a procurement audit, they do inform the agencies uh, when these types of transactions are flagged to try to minimize them, which is why we've seen a, a steady decrease in the number of uh, violations. Okay, thanks. Lance, do you wanna weigh in on this? I mean, all, my apologies, my camera's not cooperating this morning. Um, it, that's exactly it. Uh, the auditor's office reports out to us when they notice these things in their audits. And then we actively work with the agencies to see if it's a training item or if it's a 
person that's just not following the rules and we're able to uh, adjust their performances as necessary. And in some cases we've had to uh, not allow them to put purchase orders in or be able to do the purchasing function within their agencies. Um, that's a rarity. Um, more often than not, it's because they just don't know the process. Thank you. Hey, Lance, how, how often does this occur? Uh, we, do, we, do, we, do, we do these audits monthly uh, in purchasing. Okay, William. Thank you. Uh, I want to now quickly talk about short-term rentals. Uh, for the last two years, we saw that the number of active licenses in the city dropped dramatically from an all-time high of approximately 3,300 active licenses back in 2017 to just a low of 800 licenses uh, by June of 2021. We did see that by the end of December of 2021, the number of active licenses had climbed up to just over 2,100 licenses. This seems to coincide with the increase in passenger travel noted by the airport during the holiday season. Uh, we also monitor the number of licenses that have a valid lodger's tax ID number. These are account numbers for individuals to deposit taxes owed to the city. When we first audited these account numbers uh, back in 2017, we saw that only about 28% of these were, were valid account numbers. We then provided recommendations to the Department of Excise and License to provide uh, a validation mechanism when entering that field and registering for, for a license. And now over 99% of these account numbers are valid. Uh, the drop from 100% is due to a very, very small number of older licenses that have recently become reactivated in the system. Uh, the final analysis I'd like to talk about is, uh, is expense reports. These are used when a city employee uses their own personal funds for any city-related uh, business and is then reimbursed by the city. We track three risk factors and combine them into one risk model. Uh, these risk factors are, number one, the top spender, which we look to identify these individuals who request the largest cumulative dollars for reimbursement from the city. We also do what's known as a Bensford's risk analysis. This looks at the first digit in a group of numbers and determines if the patterns appear to be occurring naturally uh, and flags those that do not appear to follow any naturally occurring sets. Uh, and finally, we look at even dollar transactions specifically for this group of, of data. We look at transactions that are cleanly divisible by $10. This analysis has helped inform several audits, including the expense report approval process audit that was discussed in November of 2021. Uh, are there any questions or comments from the audit committee on any of this or, or any of the city representatives present on any of the analysis that we performed? Any questions? William, can you, <clears throat> let's look at the Benford's risk that you just presented. Can you break that? Can you bring that chart back up please? <clears throat> the reason I want it, I just want you to walk us through those numbers there in terms of the, you got 1497, which is, I assume is your total sample. And then you break it down, your 267, 381, 27. Can you just walk us through this really quickly, read or digest version? Oh, okay. So where whenever the circles are intersecting with each other, so the 1497, for example, that is someone who has been flagged as both being a, an individual who has uh, requested the most cumulative dollars and uh, one, of, one of their transactions has, uh, does not appear to be naturally occurring uh, when it comes to the value associated with it. Uh, the 381 that we see in the middle, that's the one that hits all three analysis. So it's been flagged by all three of our individual analytics in the one model. So it's both from a, from a spender who has requested uh, the most cumulative dollars. Uh, it, does, it, it, it doesn't appear to follow a naturally occurring set. 
and is an even dollar transaction. William, what is a naturally occurring number or what what's a not naturally occurring number? So uh, great discussion on Benford's. So Benford's uh, is an analysis that believes that in uh, for example, here in financial data, certain first digits, like from one through nine, will appear more frequently in uh, transactions that don't have any kind of man- manipulation in it. So, for example, uh, it might say it goes like we're expecting to see the first digit be like the number one uh, 50% of the time. And we're expecting to see the number two like 18% of the time. And essentially what the uh, analysis does is that it looks at the entirety of the data set and says, goes like, hey, this first digit is appearing more often than what we would expect uh, a, di- a digit to appear uh, naturally if we were uh, just doing uh, natural purchases. Uh, one of the reasons uh, why something might trigger something, is it, what might trigger that a- analytic is if there is an artificial cap placed on reimbursements. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, weapon allowances for the sheriff's department are capped uh, at a maximum amount. Uh, we've tried to filter for these whenever we uh, identify that, that the city has uh, capped a certain reimbursement as an amount. Uh, machinery uh, tools are also capped at a certain amount, which might trigger the analytics saying, goes like, hey, this is happening more frequently than that, because the actual purchase might be, for example, $125, but we see that they were capped at $100. So if there aren't any rules associated with spending, you would see ones happen the most frequently, then twos, then threes, then fours, then fives. That That's the Benford's law. And as William said, if, um, if, there are, if there are spending rules or limits or other constraints, that can spike a number that we wouldn't normally see in a data set. Per diems are a great amount or a great example. In travel data, we see a lot of threes because the $30 range is a is a per diem amount. And so anytime someone goes goes on business, they don't submit their actual spending, they submit the per diem. So they get $30, $30, $30. So we would see a lot of ones, a fewer twos, and then a whole bunch of threes, and then fewer fours, fewer fives. So we see the spike in the first digit three because of the per diem um, fixed amount. And so we try... So there's always false positives in, in some of these things. We try and filter out those instances where we know that those aren't quote unquote naturally occurring numbers. We pull those out to leave uh, the rest of the population of spending uh, for the analysis. Thanks, that's very helpful. Uh, other unnatural numbers might be the home address numbering system. So you know that's, that's influenced by the blocks and the, the avenues, phone numbers, Social security numbers, those all have rules around them, so they wouldn't follow Benford's law, but just normal spending should follow Benford's law. So, Sam, the takeaway from this graph is that we're able to look at tens of thousands of transactions and really narrow down the ones that would be higher risk. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, these three are, um, they're trying to help us find abnormalities in in a huge amount of data. and. And so, yes, that while each individual one may have a good reason to it, they may not say, hey, you can't, you can't buy something that has an even number. It just doesn't happen as often. And so one way we can use analytics is to find those abnormalities and say, well, let's, let's just look at those because they seem odd compare, compared to the normal data that's, that's floating around in that data set. And off, 
And what we've proven through some other analysis that we did in previous years is that when we test those high-risk items compared to just a random sample, we have a higher percentage of control failures on those abnormal transactions. That doesn't mean they're all bad. It just it helps us be more efficient in our control testing down the road. Thank you. Other questions? Uh, should we continue? All right. Uh, thanks, William, for that. And that was a lot of analytics to go through in a short amount of time. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to talk about our project updates for the for the year. Uh, in addition to the continuous audit and risk analytics that William presented, we pre we performed a few new projects, some new risk finding activities this year. If you remember from the mid-year update, we gave a detailed report on our Gentax collection activities analysis. In this analysis, we examined the locations of where collectors were actually going compared to the locations that the uh, of the taxpayers who were flagged by the, the Gentax system. So those that were being sent to referral for collections. And through this, we found a little bit of mismatch. And we, so we provided, uh, showed that they had some opportunities to improve their collection strategies. Also during the mid-year report, we reported on our journal entry risk assessment. This was a large scale project of ours led by William, uh, where we quantified four areas of risk that a previous risk assessment had found. So our first one was, another one of those like the expense reports where we identified abnormalities. And then we looked into those and we found four risks and this project quantified those risks. And that information is gonna be shared with uh, the audit team for the upcoming journal entry analysis this year. In the second half of 2021, we completed three projects. We quantified the risk related to expense reports identified in a previous analysis and that turned into a full audit. And we'll talk about that a little more here in a second. We also built a new risk model to identify potential ghost employees. Ghost employees, uh, that's, that's a term used for someone who's getting paid who actually doesn't work for the organization. This could either be a fraudulent activity or it could be a, an oops in terms of uh, terminating someone on time and they're still receiving a paycheck. Uh, and then finally, we performed some benchmarking on audit analytics in the audit field. And this was really to help us understand where we were where our office was in terms of using analytics in the audit function um, and comparing ourselves to our peers to, to identify where we can improve. That first project I, I mentioned the uh, for the expense reports, our, our risk finding analytics identified issues with how expense reports were being classified. So if they were office supplies or materials or um, you know, uh, those other categories um, in there, we found that those were being, weren't being uh, classified um, consistently. And we also found some issues with documentation that turned into a full audit. And the, the audit examined the controls around how expense reports were created. And we found some deficiencies in the internal appro approval process. That audit provided seven recommendations and was issued in November of 2021. Our ghost employee analysis, and I, I wanna say that uh, the large majority of this work was finished by Robert Persichetti, our old lead analytics auditor who has gone on to new adventures. Uh, but, uh, but I get to present it since he's not here anymore. Uh, this, again, this analysis looked for ghost employees. Uh, again, that's an individual who's being paid by the organization who doesn't work for it. This could be a fictitious person created internally, which is a fraudulent activity, or it could be an error in a termination process. 
The fraud community, like the Association of Fraud Examiners, has noted that ghost employees are becoming more likely in today's disruptions from the pandemic and the work from home environment. Therefore, we scoured the fraud literature and we identified uh, research on the subject and other audits on the subject to identify how do other people identify ghost employees. And what we came, came up with were 10 different indicators that we could test for across various city systems. And so like all analytics that we've talked about uh, that search for risk, it's good to remember that there may be good explanations for, um, for these flags being triggered, but what it does is it helps us weed out and really find those abnormal instances to help be more efficient in our testing and to verify if it's a true issue or not. So for the three systems, we looked at Kronos, which is our timekeeping time system. We flagged any timesheet uh, that had not been approved by a manager. And we also flagged employees who had maxed out PTO banks. Now, again, the, uh, someone who has a maxed out PTO bank or paid time off bank, that's ne that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if there was a ghost employee, they would never take time off. And over time, they would accumulate enough PTO to, to fill that up. So that uh, it's an indicator. It, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that person's doing anything wrong if they're a real employee. Uh, from Active Directory, this is the system that governs our network. We identified employees who either don't have access to that network or who were inactive for an, an abnorm abnormal amount of time. So they didn't log in, they didn't check their email um, in a way that uh, just doesn't look right compared to that employee type. Given that we have such a range of employees who have different needs for email access, we also created a statistic that would say, how does this employee compare to their peer group? And if that peer group, let's say they're all lifeguards, let's say none of them ever check their email or they're not even given access. We said, well, if this person doesn't have access and all of their other similar employees don't have access, we're not gonna flag them. We're, all, we're only gonna flag people who, when you compare them to their other similar work, um, their working peers, if, if everyone else has access and is checking their email regularly and this one person isn't, we're gonna flag that as an abnormal behavior. We also gathered uh, data from Workday, which is, and particularly within Workday, which holds our payroll and our human resources information. We identified any duplicate bank accounts, duplicate addresses, duplicate names, social security numbers. Again, there might be very good reasons for a lot of those. You know, we have a lot of families that work for, for the city, so they might share an address. So we, we consider that a lower risk than, than say a duplicate social security number. We shouldn't expect to find any of those, and, and we didn't. Uh, we also looked for abnormal ratios of gross to net pay. So any, if there was a ghost employee, they would likely not be taking out any benefits. So their withholdings from their paycheck would be a smaller amount than a traditional employee. So if that, if that ratio was, was off uh, compared to what was the average ratio, we flagged that as a potential risk. So for each of these, we, we gave it a risk score and then we added up those risks. And across the 13,000 employees, we found 147 high-risk employees. So those were employees with five or more points of risk based on any number of these flags. Next, what we did is we, we looked at the, the recent training histories in Workday. So uh, for cybersecurity training, these are mandatory trainings that people have to take every six months. If anyone had taken those trainings, we took them off, we took them out of that, um, out of that list. That cleared 125 of those 147 people. And then for those remaining 23 who, are, who we couldn't clear through training records, they hadn't finished their training, they had a high risk score, 
we tried to call the individual or email their managers to verify if they were active employees or not. And we, we asked some questions just if they were real employees, they could answer these questions. And from these, we were able to clear 100% of the employees. So in, in summary, we didn't find any ghost employees running this analysis. However, uh, what we did find is that those who were flagged were um, employees who were in unique circumstances. For example, a lot of these employees were, were preparing to leave the city. In fact, during the course of this, of our verification of those 23, a number of those people retired. So they were, you know, they weren't logging into systems. Uh, they had very large PTO banks. Uh, so that they were just triggering some of these flags. We also found that a lot of the people who were, who were in our high-risk group were, are working for organizations or agencies who don't really use city systems as frequently as, as the majority of employees. These included some employees at the Denver Health Medical Center, which transitioned from a city agency to a foundation years ago, but many of the staff had decided to stay on as civil servants. Uh, and therefore, one, they, they've worked for the city since the 90s, so they also had a, a lot of time off. And they were, even to get benefits, they often don't log into Workday to, to, to sign up for benefits. A lot of those are just uh, rolling over or they, they have someone else um, make the selection. So, uh, and we also had, you know, people who worked in the field like police officers or parks, uh, individuals who don't engage with city networks and, uh, and just have a different uh, work style than a traditional employee. Those were being flagged a little bit. So uh, going forward, we're gonna add all those that we clear to a safe list and then rerun these analytics on a regular basis. And we'll have a smaller subset of people to, to check out. Uh, with that, I, I, I give a, a lot of discussion on, on this analysis. I'll pause here for any questions or comments. Any questions for Sam? <clears throat> I think okay. we can continue. All right. The last project we worked on this year was to benchmark our analytics capabilities to other local government audit shops. We partnered with the Association of Local Government Auditors who gave us the contact information for the audit executive for each of their member organizations. And from this, uh, uh, this list spanned audit shops across the United States and Canada who ranged from a single auditor to audit shops with over 50 auditors uh, in that shop. So we, we gathered information from the gambit of shops and sizes and regions and areas of the United States. And um, in total, we, we received over 100 responses from a survey. And in that survey, we asked about what are the types of analytics you use, if you have any dedicated analytics resources like, like our team, and how are those results incorporated into your audit work? What we learned is that there, there are fewer shops out there with dedicated analytics resources. However, those that do have a dedicated resource are more likely to be applying these advanced statistics and methods for identifying risks and control systems. It also seems to be a growing trend. Like we are a digitizing world. And with that, this field is moving in the digital direction. Uh, we also learned that Denver is among the leaders in the types of analytics that we're using. We have a lot of peer groups out there who are also doing these things. And we learned that there are um, some areas where we can apply some of our same statistics to new to new data sets or new ways. For example, uh, using statistics to find data quality issues. We, we learned some audit shops are doing that. So we, we got a lot of really great information in addition to, to learning that we are uh, leading the way with, with a few other audit shops in terms of 
using analytics uh, uh, to improve our audit techniques. In addition to these projects, our team engages with, with audit teams throughout the year, providing various ad hoc services and support. As you can see here, data analysis, sampling, and survey de development are common areas where we give support. And in a few cases, one of our team members will be embedded in an audit team to provide support throughout the audit. We also provided numerous trainings and presented at multiple conferences in 2021. Our trainings range from building the skill sets of our auditors on an audit software called Arbutus. We also train on Excel and we give some methods trainings, for example, on attribute development and statistical sampling. Jared Miller and Robert Persichetti and I presented the phishing audit from 2021 at the Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference and at the Rocky Mountain Area Conference, which is a, a conference for accountants and auditors, uh, just showing how can, how can our techniques that we that we perform to, to look for phishing risks in the city be applied um, uh, elsewhere. And it just helps spread the word on how to help reduce risk from phishing attacks. So in total, we, we accomplished a great deal in 2021. We assigned, we assisted 14 engagements, including 12 audits and two follow-ups. We, we ran over 37 automated scripts, over 18 million records. And we provided four training programs, presented at two conferences, and, and published one article on data visualization at the Association of Local Government Auditors Quarterly. So our next steps, we're completing our 2022 plan to examine the highest risk areas of the city and county of Denver. And we're also going to focus a lot on cross-training our auditors and expanding their analytical skill sets this year. This is going to be a heavy focus. The, as I said, the audit, the audit field is moving um, into a digital environment with large data sets. And we want our staff to have as many skills to, to wrangle that data and to look for risks um, and, and incorporate that into their, their audit process. This concludes, oh, excuse me, this concludes our update presentation. And if there's any further questions, I would be happy to field those now. Any questions, Jack? I just want to make a couple of comments. Um, Sam, I really um, laud you for uh, having gone out and you know surveyed a, a bunch of other cities to find out what they're doing and how that's working out, which is, uh, I guess, you know, one of the things you do to kind of figure out, you know, how competitive you are and whether you're keeping up with what you ought to be doing. And I'd like to commend um, uh, Auditor O'Brien for having hired you in the first place. Well, thank you. Yeah, we, we do hope to share that benchmarking report this year where we're finalizing some details. So you'll, you'll, you'll get to see the, uh, the strengths and, and also the areas of opportunity that, that we have. Thank you. Just one question, Sam. How big is your staff, the analytical staff? Right now we're a staff of three. So William Morales and Nicholas Hernan here are, are three. And then we are, we're going to have an intern starting next month and we have an open position. So we might increase to a, a team of four. Um, hey, Sam, how do you ensure that your work is of quality nature? Just what, what uh, quality assurances do you have that that uh, when you're doing your analy analytics, that it's right on, spot right on. It's, I mean, 
I don't have any questions. I'm just asking the question. Yeah. Yeah. So we we follow the same internal QA process as the audit process. We have multiple levels of review uh, for for every work paper that we do, checking for validity of the work. And if if someone of you know, someone else who's technically knowledgeable on that subject would come to the same conclusion. Uh, we so we check both the logic of the analytics to make sure that the 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 scripts that we're writing, the statistics that we're using are logical and that they are coming to the conclusions that we would expect and not getting erroneous answers. And then also how we interpret that information is also reviewed by um, multiple people, usually at least two people and sometimes three people before we, uh, we submit it for publication. And then Katya, our director, does the final QA. Anytime we write a report and she'll check our cross-references and make sure that the conclusions that we drew within each work paper align with the statements that we're making in the report. So it's kind of a peer review, right? An internal peer review in terms of doing- Yeah, it's very similar to any audit that we do. There's an internal review, peer review process. Thank you. Sam, I want to compliment you and your team. Uh, you have taken this you know, from an idea to really being a leader in the country. In fact, I don't know of any other municipality that has this kind of capability. Um, and I think this is a fabulous program. Um, I know I challenge you on many of the things that you do, but uh, I just, you have my full support going forward on this. and. As you noted in the report, I think you know training more and more of our staff on how to use these automated techniques is important. So, great job to all of you. <coughs> Any other comments or questions for Sam? Any more accolades for Sam? We'll take them. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. I mean, great work. Yeah, the team has done an amazing job over these past years. And uh, yeah, I wish Robert was here for this last one to hear all this. He he was a instrumental part of the team and uh, Nicholas is new, but he's also already bringing new ideas. We're, we're implementing some of his, um, back to your point, Rudy, we're, we're going through some of our code and, and just annotating it more so that it can be more accessible to the entire office, not just people who know how to write code. So uh, that's another way that we're gonna try and help disseminate uh, the skill sets where we'll, we'll start cycling more people through the process to to help where they can learn how to use this information and, and use these tools. And I think it's hopefully, hopefully just democratize the entire uh, skill set throughout the office. I admire you in that sense because I think it's really, really critical that you integrate both because you got the auditors that are doing the <clears throat> feet on the ground type of analysis and then with you doing the overall and you got to merge those two in order to make it operational and uh, very effective. And I think you, you are, so thank you. Yeah, and if I could note the one bubble graph in your report that shows that you probably looked at 20 million transactions in 2021. And that's, what's, uh, that's what we need to do, so. Yeah, if you look in the report, I the slide, got lost, but the report that you received that it's somewhere at the beginning shows the breadth of the the, the systems that we're looking at. That's why I was commenting because there's so many transactions. I mean, like 200,000, 200 million, and you're narrowing it down. That's why I'm, I'm, 
I was concerned about the quality behind that, making sure, but it's, but the peer review sounds just right, right on, spot right on. All right. Well, thank you. Um, our next night item is general business. Uh, general business. Our next meeting is on March 17th. Uh, I expect everybody to be wearing green, but uh, we will have this meeting in person in the Par Widener room. I hope you know where the Par Widener room is. It seems like it's been so long since we've been together, but. Um, with that, I'd uh, like to go into executive session to talk about the audit committee charter and the self-assessment that we've done for 2021. Is there a motion to get us into executive session? I move that we go into executive session. Second. Thank you. Uh, all in favor say aye. 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 All right. As soon as that, let's go into executive session. Recording when... stopped. Okay. Leadership of both parties, members of the General Assembly, Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera, Treasurer Dave Young, Attorney General Weiser, our dedicated First Gentleman Marlon Reese, Mayor Hancock, Justices of the Colorado Supreme Court, and members of the Cabinet. Welcome. I appreciate and value your presence here today. And I really look forward to all the good work that we're going to do in the days and weeks ahead on behalf of the people of Colorado. We who are elected are so privileged to represent the people. My fellow Coloradans, I wanna begin with gratitude. Gratitude for the people of Colorado who've shown up day after day in the face of trauma and under difficult circumstances to help one another, to help our Colorado. Gratitude for the individuals who fought past their own personal challenges to support the need of our community. Gratitude for my colleagues in this chamber who put Coloradans first, no matter what. And of course, gratitude for my family. Marlon, I want to thank you for being here today and everything you do for me and our family. Also immensely grateful for my staff, the workers for the state of Colorado, employees working hard in service to our great state through thick and thin. While this pandemic has made even the most mundane activities more risky, we haven't endured the virus alone. Evil acts against innocent people in the places we once ran errands or recreated have also made us feel less safe. We feared the ever-changing nature of the virus, wondering if what protected us yesterday will protect us today. We learned, unfortunately, that the words fire season don't apply when the most destructive fire in Colorado history happens at the end of December. 
And we were reminded once more that our lives and everything we hold dear can go up in flames in an instant. Yet, hope shines through. Hope. I know how easy it is to get lost in the pain and sadness and challenges of what we've all endured together. But no matter how tough last year was, I know for a fact that Coloradans are fundamentally good and tougher. We care for one another. We're tougher than anything thrown our way. I've seen it myself, and I know you have too, in so many ways. I've seen it in the students of Central High School in Mesa County, who, with the help of school staff, stood up a series of vaccination clinics before many of the student volunteers themselves were even eligible to get vaccinated, working 10 to 11 days volunteering. The students and their faculty supervisors got more than 1,300 community members protected from the virus. I'm proud to be joined today by Mesa County Valley District 51 Superintendent, Assistant Superintendent Brian Hill and 